0: open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15. We're going to take a one more look at the Song of Moses in this chapter uh, because it, uh, it really has uh, quite a bit of teaching for us and um, my prayer is that you'll, you'll profit greatly by a preaching that's more a study, but uh, I need to make some points here regarding uh, the worship of God and how this is done in this particular passage because I really think uh, this is a pattern of worship containing many, many of the elements, in, in essence, it's well. I, I think it really is the very essence of singing uh, among the people, the peoples of God. So, uh, if you can remain standing, and um, as I as I read, and if you must sit, please do because it's it's a long reading. Once again, so Exodus 15 and the first 21 verses. And his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O oh Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O oh Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods flood, uh, stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hands shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You've led them in your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. And now the chiefs of Edom dismay. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And I'll stop at verse 18. Thus reading God's holy and in word. Let's pray. Lord, as we return to you, we pray that as your word is so perfect, perfectly suited, Lord, for instruction and correction and training in righteousness, but also for for uh, for worship, Lord, and for praise and song. We pray, Lord, that we would learn all, we would glean all that we can from your precious word. You have told us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word. That issues forth from your mouth. May we hear your word, Lord, and me, or may we rejoice. And we bless you for your kindness in revealing your worship. We pray in Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. You know, whenever we see, uh, it's mostly movies or even childhood cartoons, I remember there would be, uh, there, there would be portions there where, where scenes from heaven uh, are presented, and everybody's always. Uh, singing or playing harps or whatever, and you're trying to figure out if that's if that's heaven? It's, I don't know. <laughs> it, it seems like a pretty dull place. You know, a, a chubby a chubby cherubim on a, on a fluffy cloud uh, with a twelve string harp. Uh, uh, you know, you might get rid, you might get sick of that after ten thousand years. You know, that's not the glory of heaven. The glory of heaven is enjoying God in His presence and His blessing, and uh, and His fellowship. Uh, but uh, a lot of that what will be uh, the manner of heaven and, and the the work of heaven, you might say, uh, is is precisely worship, and and so we who are, have the first fruits of the spirit and are being prepared for a heavenly habitation should become uh, expert as, as much expert as we can in song and in music and in exalted speech. I mentioned yesterday, uh, excuse me, last last preaching that that uh, this song of Moses is really. Uh, if it weren't to, uh, if it weren't sung to music of itself, it would be exalted speech. It would be uh, Hebrew poem, and that's one of the marks I had mentioned uh, of of this kind of literature uh, of, of literature that is used for song. The same as typical for the Psalms. Now I began uh, some light uh, comments of analysis at last week, but this week uh, I'm going to dive in a little bit deeper uh, because I want to show you I want to show you what really is going on here in terms of the structure of the psalm, which we mentioned last time, Jehovah being the the God that is, that has done some things, uh, redeemed his people, that was, and that is to come, the prophetic sections of of this song. So in that three part, and of course, when we see that this is the very uh, name of Jehovah God, the great I am, and its theme of I am being that he was, that he is, and that he continues to be, we see the usefulness of just the name of Jehovah himself Yahweh himself as the very <laughs> as the very expression of our depth and breadth of all that we sing we sing Jehovah and that's what i want to uh, to really under, uh, have you understand today that when we sing we sing Jehovah or and when we preach we preach nothing else but Jehovah as well, as, as Christ said. I, I determined to know nothing, of, nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. That's an analogous statement, as I hope you'll see this uh, in, in a minute. But anyway, let me get through these notes. You've got, you've got some my my notes in front of you. This is a, a somewhat of a different preaching, so I'll, I'll get through this rather rapidly. Follow along, and if you get lost, call me in the middle of the week, and we'll go over this again. I note here, for instance, that a song is different from other types of scripture, and, and your, your, your Bible should show you that it's indented differently, it's in stanzas, a lot of Hebrew poetry uh, repeats ideas in, in, in stanzas, and, or uh, not only repeating, but sometimes it offsets it by, by opposite, uh, or it builds, it continues to build uh, onto a, a crisis. Anyway, that's the nature of, of poetry. Um, song is a type of poetry in the Scripture, and it's special. It's uncommon language. And Scripture is all magnificent, uh, and it's all perfect, but, but uh, this type of online, uh, un, uh, unusual, uncommon language is even different for Scripture. It's offset from the rest of the language used in Scripture. Poetry, really, I want to, you to understand that poetry is our very first exalted language. The first thing that Adam responded in seeing Eve was exalted language. He said here in this, in most in of most your Bibles will be, again, in stanza form, because in the Hebrew it does come across as poetry. And, and what he said was, uh, when he saw Eve, he remarked to the Lord, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now that doesn't rhyme and that's not suitable to what, uh, what tastes America has currently for poetry, but it is it's Hebrew poetry. But it is exalted language, and it's offset even in, uh, in, the, in the, the, the narrative of Genesis 2. The poetry, then, is, I like to consider it as a return to our first language before man was corrupted. Uh, this, is, this is something to be noted, uh, and especially when you hear a lot of people who uh, in this day and age do not use exalted language, they use profane language. And with the profanation of language, or there's no there's no greater proof of a defilement, of a weakening, of an apostatizing nation than when its language begins to be corrupted and compromised. You can tell much about a person by their use of language and how they express themselves, but poetry is a return to our first language. And so it is most suitable for a language for the redeemed. Because in a sense, we are returning uh, to the Lord, and uh, many, many pictures of paradise are going to be before the people here in Exodus. You'll see the 70 palms of Elam. You'll see the seven pools of water and things like that. There's other imagery in Canaan that that, uh, speaks, and even in the temple, it speaks of a return to to paradise. Paradise is given for uh, our final resting place again in heaven. Which is a, a type of very much expanded paradise, I would say, an improved and upgraded paradise. Um, and and this language is also on the lips of God's children, and and earnest of our future language in heaven, because in heaven our language will be pure, in the new heavens and the new earth. It is spiritually elevated, and it is expression of praise, which is suited to, uh, to stirring. Uh, not only uh, the hearts and the emotions, but the intellect and uh, and joy, uh, and, and hence Mir- Miriam uh, repeats the refrain here with with tambourine. By the way, uh, well, I, mean, I keep I keep thinking of this. I keep thinking of this a very useful instrument, uh, the high timbral uh, uh, frequencies of, of of a tambourine being being, held, uh, being heard for great distances. And, uh, of course, everybody in that mass would need a, a percussive type of instrument to keep, uh, keep up in the, in the singing, and that, that was in hand. It's an easy one, so there we have a tambourine. Um, it's interesting to note, I, not, only, not only is it a spiritual exercise, but it's also, and I'm not an expert in this, you people know more about this than I do, but I think singing is, an, is a physiological exercise. Now, how do I know this? Well because I know because when I sing and I sing well, I derive much of the same benefits as when I work out in my gym a song is a is an exercise of breath and breath is very kin to the Hebrew idea of spirit returning to God as he has given us his spirit but that's another, you know that's another a prosaic way of saying it's 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 a form of communion, but it is a whole brain and a whole body exercise if you if you if you're, if you're a mathematician, you're working with the right brain step or right, left brain. I always confuse the two because I confuse left and right. So I turn left, I turn right. I go. But anyway, math is of one hemisphere of the brain and the other art is of another. But music integrates both. Because when you sing and you sing intelligently according to truth, you have precept and you have proposition and you have cognitive understanding of what you are singing. Otherwise, it's really it's really not worship. If you're just singing the sounds of syllables and words, and have no idea what you're singing, you're singing about Gog and Magog. You have no idea of the history. It's not really it doesn't mean anything. So it's not good praise. But if you under, if you sing with understanding, it's an exercise in the whole physiology of man. It's an integrating exercise. It just as we are saved not only just in our spirits, but in our bodies and our, our 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 souls as well. Song uses then the the human audible voice in an orderly. And, uh, and especially in congregate worship, a unified and a musical manner. Now, a lot can be said here about music and its relation to, uh, to God, uh, just to say the, the sound, sound as it relates. I, I can say that, but I, I, I need to get through this, this, this piece of, of passage here. Um, the song, a song is especially designed for worship with other believers in the covenant, in the covenanted community of faith. And that's why you see the word, the name Jehovah here. Jehovah is not merely uh, the, the Lord that he introduced himself to Moses, he is uh, the name by which he has co- is covenanted to his people. And so it, it calls to mind a relationship based on promise and uh, based on, on the Lord who promises. Now, I want to say, you to letter B, if you're following along. Uh, If you're not following along, you're going to get quickly lost, because this is just a lot of information. Uh, Letter B, Moses' song, then, is the first song recorded in Scripture. I think I alluded to to that last preaching. And uh, uniquely, Jehovah is reduced to the first root, the first syllable, Yah. And and, and the the unusual thing about this is, is Moses' song is also... The last song recorded in Scripture, and it also features the uh, the contraction of the word and it, uh, Yahweh is a short word. Jehovah is a short word in Hebrew, but it's further contracted Yah. And so, both uh, the first song in Scripture and the last is a con- is a contraction uh, involving the uh, this one syllable Yah. Now, uh, let me just say before you look that up and say that's not, I that can't be the last song. Well. Th- in in Exodus in uh, excuse me in Revelation 15:3 the scripture says that they sing the present they sing the song of Moses and of the lamb not they sang or they shall sing but they are perpetually as it were as a kind of a, the essence of song singing the song of Moses and the song of the lamb it's a present active verb in the greek and so it's the first and it's the last and when you see that then you may you may see that it's spanning the whole redemptive plan, the whole scope of Scripture, so that it, it, it is useful in all circumstances, in all places, by all peoples. Um, I want to say also in letter D that this is not the first song in all creation. Uh, the angels sang that first song corporately. Now, <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Let me read to you from Job 38. Job begins to... <laughs> The Lord Jehovah begins to correct uh, his servant Job, and uh, as they were trying to give him some, some good counsel about all of his woes and what was wrong with his life, and his friends were not really that useful. But he he begins these questions, which are all profoundly impossible to, to answer, their rhetorical nature, but anyway... Uh, Job 38, beginning with verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? the sons of God, or I take to be the angels, and they watched the initial creation uh, and, and God drawing out the line and sinking its foundations and all that stuff. And so that was all uh, the stars were singing, you might say metaphorically, but the, the sons of men, the sons of God, shouted for joy and uh, uh, praise to God. So that's the very first song. But now Moses' song here uh, is, is perfect and is constructive. And it's, and it's interesting because I don't know, but these sons of God, these angels, may have been given an, inert, uh, an, an, an innate knowledge, uh, just as they've been given innate righteousness, they may have been given an innate knowledge to sing, sing, uh, to sing spontaneously this song uh, of the creation when the sons of God shouted for joy. in uh, just the same way Moses here constructs this song very quickly. I mean, he's just just come out uh, from the bondage uh, of Egypt, uh, the Passover, everything's happened very quickly, everybody crossed over through the dry ground, the the parting of the waters, Uh, and and, uh, it just shows you what the Spirit of the Lord can do when it overwhelms his prophets and enables him to write something quickly and skillfully, most wisely. And it's because it's inspired. Now, I think that's one of the key things here that we're seeing. The people of Israel, the Hebrew people, are getting to understand the difference between inspired literature and just common literature. That, the, that the, the prophets have a word from God and that they must be listened to. And that's a lesson that will have to be with them till the very end. And yet, many of them failed in that lesson. But it gives... Uh, tremendous evidence as to the fact that God gives speech and, uh, and, and beauty, beautiful uh, uh, poetry, exalted language to his, to his prophets. Now, this song, I think I mentioned it in my, my previous outing here on the song, it answers to the faith of an individual believer. Every individual believer should be able to sing this song in good conscience And every Hebrew here in the congregation must sing because they all sang. And it was an individual thing. And at the same time, it answers to the faith of the whole community, the amen of all the people. Now, you may not think that's very unusual. But as you look around, even in America today, all the confusion about what the Christian faith really is. It's hard to compose anything of any substance that every individual will feel comfortable with, (laughs) let alone in the entire community of God. In other words, uh, this, is, this is something that uh, is, is given for uh, in the unity of the Holy Spirit. There, there's a bond of peace. There's a unity here that is lovely. And just as a symphony is lovely when everybody's in tune and listening to one another in one accord, uh, so in, in the singing of this, of this song. Letter F. The song of Moses has a heavy eschatological quality. And you know the name of it. You know what I'm saying. Eschatological, that's a long word. Uh, but it means an end time. It it tells you of the end of things. It speaks of of where things are going, the purpose and and, uh, where everything is going to be ending up. The the heavy, heavy statement of eschatology here is that all Israel is saved. um, And in distinction, all Israel's enemies lay dead, and that before their sight. In other words, it's, it's, it's nice for us to sing this song and to say, you know, yeah, I can see, I can see, you know, God loves Israel, Jehovah loves Israel, and he doesn't like uh, Egypt, uh, the pretentious pagan nation. Okay, I got, I got it. No, no, no. This is more akin to our eschatological position when the Lord saves us, and we're at the right hand of God the Father, and we look and see the masses and how they woefully will be led away to the abyss. We see the chariots of Pharaoh and all the strong, all the wise, all the powerful, the noble. They are gone. They are sunk because they did battle against Jehovah. And we are overwhelming victories and they are in our sight. We've got to feel this because that is part of the joy of this nation. But when we enter into the Spirit, we have the same eschatological joy in the Holy Spirit. We can sense the day of Christ's triumph in heaven. And if you've never had that experience, you really haven't entered into the real sanctuary of worship because He is the one who is, the one who was, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. That's what we're saying. If we have communion with God, we have some taste of who He is to us now but some taste of what he will be to us in the end. It's a heavy eschatological quality. And it's perfect, of course, for worshiping God on the Sabbath. The Sabbath will be introduced when? The next chapter. Not by commandment, but by example. This is not a coincidence. Okay? Because eschatology, its Sabbath is about end times. It was, it was about the end of creation. And it's, it's about the, the, the end and the purpose of man. And, and so it's perfect for worshiping God on the Sabbath or an emblem of our final rest. And no wonder God's people continue to meet, God's congregation continues to meet on the Lord's Day, which is a Sabbath, okay? This song, however, I want to say is not ceremonial. It's not, it's, not for, uh, it's not for Levites. The Levites have not been sanctified to their duties yet. It's not strictly for temple liturgy. No instruments have been assigned by commandment at all. It, it, there's no choirs here. The only musician really is, is Miriam, but I think she's more, you know, rattling the, 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 the instrument out of ecstasy than, than any kind of musicality. So this is not, this is not ceremonial, nor is it a, a national song. That is to say, it's not a civic song. You know, we have, and I love America the Beautiful, okay? I, I, I you know, I go to the ballpark and we, we, we sing all kinds of stuff because we're, we're happy to be American. Uh, and Israel is happy to be Israel. So, but it's not a civic song, and, and because Israel is not yet covenanted as a nation at Mount Horab, that's to come, that's to come. So it's not ceremonial. It's not it's not civic or national. Therefore, I, I, I say the only other type of thing that can be here uh, in the commandment to sing is that it's a moral, it's a universal and a perpetual commandment, and it has qualities. This this writing has qualities that give you that give you. Um, uh, good uh, uh, proof that it is moral, universal, and perpetual. It has these qualities. First of all, it, it's probably all. It's easily enough sing, uh, sung by all. I mean, the, the thoughts are very lofty. The, the notions are are exalted, and, and yet it's not a difficult song to sing. Um, it's easily traduced, that is it's easily handed down and carried around uh, without instruments. So uh, so it's it's. It, it, it has a perpetual universal quality of, of, of that. It's portable even across a vast wilderness and into the promised land. And then, my friends, my argument is to all nations and to heaven. And to heaven. We'll see this in the worship of Revelation chapter 15, verse 3. All right. And so what we see is just as Jehovah spans the. the Jehovah in his name and his essence must span. Uh, all of redemptive history, so is the song of Jehovah. So is Jesus' song. All right? It is a perfect pattern of praise and prophecy in song. It has all the essential elements. Others can be added uh, by, by derivation, uh, such as lament and, and uh, uh, also uh, 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 supplication and things like that. Uh, but, but they still are praising God and being dependent on God. So in essence, we have a perfect pattern. This praises God's essence, his unique and superlative attributes. It praises God using his covenant name and person, the I am, and really, which is the outline of the song, as I've said before. It praises his work uh, because uh, it shows and it's remembering his absolute power over the creation. First of all, his his power over the creatures, over Pharaoh, uh, over the chariots, over horses, uh, over the sea over the wind, absolute power over his creation, showing that God is the God of creation, absolute power to redeem, to bring back a people that is wayward uh, from uh, bondage and from difficulty by promise, the promises that he gave to Abraham. But it especially celebrates his latest work. And this is a feature, I need to point out, of song. This is the feature that allows us to sing a new song to the Lord when, when we see God doing something magnificent for his kingdom or out of his grace for our nation. I mean, the medieval, the medieval uh, Roman Catholic Church had this notion they would, they would have their te deum, you know, whenever there was a magnificent military victory over some heretic or some some, some, some dangerous uh, opponent of, of the kingdom of God. Uh, they would sing a new song and they would have a te deum. And that's pretty much how mankind has done in remembering great battles. Uh, we have battle hymns of the Republic. We have all sorts of hymns uh, uh, singing the, how the legendaries strength of such and such a, a general and all this. We, we like those kind of things. That's Humanity does that. It celebrates then Jehovah's latest work. It had just happened. I mean, they were brought over. They passed over the Red Sea, the redemption of his people out of Egypt. His works then are as his name. They, they, they are suitable to his name. Uh, they, they are compatible, and they are derivative of his name. Because the Lord has essential being, and is not dependent on anything, or, uh, or anybody, and so he must necessarily be independent of all things, and can influence all things. Alright? And so the I am, the was, is, and is to come, is the outline also, uh, not only of this this passage, Exodus 15, but also, you might say, loosely, the book of Revelation. I, that, when I preached it, that was the, the outline of a very primitive, very simple outline of the book of the Revelation. The one who was, is, and is to come. In other words, what I the, the way I see it, the book of Revelation is a, re, a recapitulation of the entire Bible, uh, but also including the prophetic portions of Revelation. Uh, of that which remains, Now you can strike that. The comparison: not all dispensationalism deals entirely with futuristic prophecy. Uh, there are divisions within dispensationalism, but classically, they were mostly uh, they were mostly concerned with uh, what was going to be happening in the future. But that things have improved in that camp, so you can strike that. Um, his workings are his name, eternal God. That's how he introduced himself to Moses in the bush, the great I Am. His providence. And then the eschatology, where things are ending up on his holy hill to abide with, with his people. Uh, and this is, of course, the very same narrative as in the book of Revelation. It remembers and it institutionalizes Jehovah's works. That, that's the beautiful thing about a song. We remember things. in re, Psalm 107 is a great catalog. It's like an anthology of... The different kinds of people. Sailors and all kinds of people. Nomads that wandered in the wilderness. They were lost. and they Oh, the Lord led them to the city and they were saved. And the Lord continually uh, shows his presence among the needy that call out to him and they're saved. And so songs, like Psalm 107, remember that and institutionalize Jehovah's works for the rejoicing of all the people. When one member uh, rejoices, all rejoice. This is uh, this Type of singing is most consistent with a covenant of people that share all things. We, we share the fathers. We share the prophets. We, we, we share everything that Israel shared. And we in the New Testament church share all things together. And so, uh, and so this type of singing is, is, is commensurate with that. It teaches Jehovah's works. So it has a didactic element, as many psalms do. Um, and we are to use these psalms uh, to future generations. Uh, parents are to teach their children. I think that's Psalm seventy-eight and instruct the future and their children, their children, the works of God, and uh, and how par- our parents have failed, but the, the promises to them to, that the Lord will, will will continue to save people, etc. All right. Um, K. Letter K. It's pattern of uh, the pattern of this portion of Scripture and its parts. Are repeated in various other psalms, even though they were written 100, uh, 450 years later by by the prophet David and, and others. I, I won't. I I, I thought I'd give some examples, and if I were doing a writing, I would. Uh, but but there there are just too many examples of this. There's just way too many examples. But we can compare um, this psalm to Moses' only other psalm that we just sang tonight, the Psalm 90, the first psalm that was ever written. And that prayer celebrates God in his eternality as the I am, but in contradistinction to a man who is not everlasting but returns to the dust. And so the narrative of the I am is still, is still there, uh, but in lament and then in that psalm in, in prayer. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs then uh, must regulate corporate worship today. Because we must be, uh-oh, did my battery go? Let's see, is it gone? It may be gone. Let me go to the lower podium. Is that okay? Because I want the people at home. Maybe I don't want to lose, lose anybody. I'll just go downstairs. So so the scripture, in a sense, regulates all of life and is sufficient to do so. Uh, But how much more so the the worship of God and we who are reformed insist that uh, in the sufficiency of scripture to address all manner of things, every circumstance in life, we have a light in the shining in a dark place to, to, to direct us. We have a lamp to guide our feet and especially as we have the Holy Spirit. Internally to give us a conviction of that light, but more so in his, his worship. And so worship must be regulated according to the word of God. And that's why in Colossians, we have an instruction to, for the believers, not the ministers, but the believers, to address one another in psalms, in psalms and hymns and in scripture. Song. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, You who are a prophetic commonwealth, you Christians, you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's Colossians 3.16. Again, in Ephesians, Paul writes the very same, very similar thing, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That is to say, in, in sincerity, it's a spiritual worship but uh, you you see the value there and we are, we are we are we are instructed that there is there is a method and there's a, a way that we are to uh worship God in in song and we can't just do anything that we want at worship in song okay uh letter l its its usefulness as a universal uh pattern Uh, is is shown because parts of it are repeated in other various songs that are not in psalms. So we find the song of Habakkuk in in the third chapter of that prophetic writing. We find Elizabeth and Mary in the New Testament also. Um, Highly exalted language, the song of Elizabeth and Mary. Uh, Very triumphant, messianic, and, and, and pointing again to the future redemption and the liberty of the sons of God. And so Moses, the song of Moses then is for all of the redeemed of all nations and of all ages. And that's why it's usefulness in Revelation chapter 15 and verse 3, because at that point, the Lord is gathering and has gathered a sufficient numbers. I mean, well, I guess in the, in the end, already accomplished in the book of Revelation, you say that all the nations, uh, representatives from, from all tribes, nations, languages and tongues are already redeemed and they're before the the throne of God, and and you see the usefulness because they sing expressly the song of Moses and uh, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Again, very similar pattern, using exactly... Uh, in the spirit, it calls it the song of Moses, and and it says it's also the song of the Lamb. I take it to be one and the same thing. I don't don't take it to be two songs concatenated. I take it to be one and the same thing. All right, so whatever is written in the scripture is written for our edification and use, unless it, it says so otherwise. But in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, the things happen to them as an example. They are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. You know I think the people here are te- are being taught how to worship God corporally in song, and so if that's there it's there as a pattern for us all right now now let me get down to some areas that might be controversial in some sections of the Reformed church all right, letter n all songs then used in worship today must conform to the above criteria okay either they must be inspired. And the the way to really (laughs) ascertain this is to sing it in the Hebrew or in the original Greek, which very few people can. Uh, But if you've got a reliable translator, God help us, I hope we do, uh, then uh, we can do that, hopefully. Or we can sing what is true doctrine, what's true teaching deduced by good and necessary consequence from Scripture and rightly applied to the believer. In other words the proof of, that we have an understanding of these things is in its application. Uh, I'll give you an, let me repeat this. The proof that you understand something is in the doing of it. Uh, Elder Jeremy preached that the other day. Hebrew mind knows nothing of knowing something without practicing it. It's just incomprehensible. So when you know something, you, if you truly know it, you'll be wise to apply it. And I had a discussion with uh, Dr. Piper just last morning. I like to call him on Saturday mornings just to bother him. He's preaching through the book of Job uh, there in, uh, in Simpsonville. And I, I mentioned to him that uh, I said, now, Job, you know, it, when you read those, uh, everything that those counselors of Job says seems to be right. And you can quote any passage in the book of Job and it finds some sense to it. But, but in the end, they were all wrong because what they were saying <laughs> wasn't right in its application in its application, they they miss by a mile. and So the Lord Jehovah rebukes them (laughs) and he vindicates his servant, Job. It's quite an elegant piece. It's an epic, it's an epic poem, Uh, but it shows you the wisdom uh, that is needed to apply scripture right. But if we do it right, we have liberty to sing in this manner to God. All songs in worship then must conform to this above criteria, either inspired directly in a good translation or doctrine deduced by good and necessary consequences. So that songs, in other words, we can also sing about Trinity, because that's a good and, and, and good and necessary consequence. Uh, we can identify uh, Zion with Jerusalem if we want, or Jerusalem with Zion, even though the text may not say it. Songs that conform to the above criteria are universally acceptable, and they're pleasing to God, and are especially uh, correspond to the liberty that the sons of God have, uh, having escaped uh, the bondage of fear. The liberty of the sons of God is not something unique to the New Testament. The liberty of the sons of God is for all who know Jehovah and could exalt in the spirit in all ages. And we see this in the exuberant praise, for instance, of Miriam. We see this. All right, such songs or portions of songs uh, should not be prohibited in the worship of God in New Testament churches. A Prohibition... Uh, against singing uh, explicitly use of 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 tri- of Jesus, or I already mentioned Trinity, is especially disturbing. The reason is, here's why. Uh, I say uh, anyone that that might, or any denomination that might prohibit the explicit singing using the word the name of Jesus, really has no understanding of Exodus 15, zero, because. Jesus means Jehovah saves. In fact, it's the concatenated uh, form of Jehovah. Yeah Useful here and useful in Revelation 15 and it says here quite explicitly in verse 2 that Jehovah is my strength But more importantly and you can put it in bold italics that Jehovah is my song So if you have Jehovah and you're singing of Jehovah, you're singing quite biblically And uh, the name Jehovah, Jesus, means Jehovah saves. Jehovah is my strength, my song, and he has become my salvation. That is to say that Jesus is the I am. And that's what we see when we read uh, the book of John, the gospel of John. Over and over, and I don't know how many, ten times maybe? I am the door, I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Before Abraham was, I am. What's Jesus getting to? The same thing he's getting to in the book of Revelation, the one who was, who is, and is to come. Now, so prohibition against singing explicitly the latest works of God, such as the cross, uh, the resurrection, the ascension. uh, That's not, it's not in the heart of what, of how God loves to be praised. God loves to be praised when his people are amazed and they look back and say, when they say, oh, look, look at the strength. Look at this. He's done this and he's done this for me. How could God possibly be not pleased with that? And so, only such songs. And now, I have now I'm going to put a constraint. We can't just sing any silly old song. We can't whistle any little old thing. You know, we have to sing in the spirit. We have to sing in, according intelligently as to the pattern that God has taught us in the scriptures. That example is there, and, and it uh, and it commutes as a moral uh, commandment and a design and teaching. And only such songs or portion of songs that are are acceptable to God because he is the I am in his worship uh, in, the New Testament, in the New Testament church. So by way of application here, though as it's been teaching, uh, I want you to consider this because you may be attending other churches. Uh, and as long as I'm here, I'll, I'll try to, to keep these rules. But a regimen of songs uh, for the church, corporate singing, a regimen of corporate singing deficient in these qualities, it, it, it falls short of biblically regulated worship. The churches sin at worship and that pollute the very f- fountain of strength. If you are to be strong in the Lord this week, you're going to get your strength through the ordinances and especially the worship. But much of evangelical Christianity today in America lacks this kind This, this in their songs and very much essentially, or at least in their diet, doesn't give a robust uh, nutrition to the soul. A diet of songs deficient in these qualities will not produce... Robust worship, nor will it produce robust, mature Christians. And now when we're facing an age of difficulty, suppose persecution breaks up or famine or plague or any number of difficulties. Are we prepared as soldiers? Do we have iron in our blood to, to be brave and to stand our ground as witnesses in this age? That's the whole contest in the book of Revelation. The Hebrews are breeding children that are soldiers, And so is Paul in the book of Ephesians. Stand firm, put on the full armor of God. We are soldiers. Also beware of narrow legalism. Don't let any man despise your liberty at worship. Don't let anyone bind your conscience when you are perfectly content and you feel the Lord's joy because all of what you're singing is biblical truth and true and and just clear as light, clear as light. But a legalism will say, don't don't handle, don't touch those and they get pickier and pickier. There's no end to the pickiness once you enter into dispute about our liberty at worship. Also, the, the lack of a, of a biblical eschatology and song, it results in a religion that really doesn't comfort as it should. It it, it, oh yeah, it palliates a little bit of, of life's uh, discomforts, but it doesn't transcend. It does not transcend the great battle the great spiritual warfare that the church is undergoing in every age and makes light of that. Your strength is like the Lord's table because that's the, that's the final table. That's the last table. And you're partaking of that. And Jesus is there with you so you know the end. And that's comfort, you see. All right. But when, when, when churches and when individuals have this diet of, 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 of hymnody that's lacking, And the very goal of the faith, it makes for a a, a very sickened weakly religion. Not that God can't save. I'm not saying that. But, you know, we ought to give God our best and receive the best from God. Okay? I mean, I think that makes sense. The worship of God today, then, is not only very much vested in this notion of Jehovah the Great I Am and Jesus being the, the Jehovah that saves, but in every sense, it must be mediated by Christ in his spirit and with all his truth. And just as in prayer, we call upon the name of the Lord. And this, this music and song is an exalted language. It would be very strange to think, well, in our prayers, we mention Christ because he's the mediator. But in our songs, we don't need Jesus. We don't need to call on him for prayer, for our singing. In other words, our singing is not mediated. Is it that perfect that it doesn't need a mediator? Think about it. What's going on in your heart? You certainly need a mediator. Because you're distracted in your songs and he needs to add much perfume and forgiveness and much righteousness and much understanding and light. Because even our best singing is deficient before God, just as our our best prayers and our our best preaching is, is deficient before God. But he the mediator stands before the Lord and he is the one who is our worshiper and he worships perfectly in spirit and in truth. That's the worship of God today. It must be mediated by Christ in the spirit with all his truth, as much truth as we can. And that's what we mean by worship the spirit and truth. John 4 and verse 24. Now, how do we attain this? How do we keep all this in mind? Well, I know the laity, uh, you know, you, you need to be instructed. You need to make sure that, we, that you don't run into a bad pattern of worship somewhere. But for the most part, the elders need to be careful that, that our, 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 we don't overly constrain ourselves and then we don't under constrain ourselves at worship, that we, we are expressly biblical and precisely biblical, because God is a God of truth with great, great, great precision. Not one word of his prophecies ever fails. Um, how to attain this? It's, it's by faith. The Lord helps his people. The Lord gives us light. The Lord gives us strength. And if we err, he's, he's gracious to forgive. He accepts our worship as we accept little gifts from our children. Uh, things that don't really have a, a lot of value. Look, Daddy. Here, oh, it's an acorn. Look at that. Where'd you find it? In the backyard. Oh wow, let's save it. Let's put it in your let's put it in your box in your in your bedroom. Now, how many acorns are there? There's a, there's a ton of acorns, but he's from your child and he wants, he gives it to you because he's, he's, he's just found this out and you love your child. A lot of our worship is in song, especially, is the lisping of our praise. <laughs> we're, we're just beginning to learn this language. But we do have the first fruits of it. And what God gives us as the first fruits of the pretty eternal praises of, of God and Father, Son in, 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 uh, in, in, the, in the eternal heavens. What he gives us now in the Holy Spirit, we ought to cherish and we ought to hold. It's precious. Its, it's value is beyond, beyond price. So be thankful to God that he gives us his word, that he's teaching us what will be our practice forever in heaven. And this is yours by faith as Christ, our mediator and the true song leader and the only worship leader conducts us into his presence with song. Let's pray. Now, Lord, we, uh, we stand to, th- to thank you for bringing joy in our hearts. It, 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 I know we don't think of all these things when we're singing, but we do engage our minds and our hearts united before you and with one another in, in, re- in rejoicing in all that you are all that you ever will be, and all of your works as well. And we pray that we would exalt in the wisdom of God in teaching us even here, but also, Lord, in giving us material that is very apt to our nature, song and music, rejoicing and dancing. And we pray now, Lord, uh, that the lessons of tonight would ever be with us, and that we would exalt the Lord in such a fashion, and that you will always be pleased with us. Help us to to know the Lord and his leading and uh, the mind of Christ in all things. The the mind of the Spirit as he's penned this passage. And we pray your blessings of all our hearers. Bless our hearts and lead us in peace forever. Amen. Let's rise, we'll sing.